On Forgotten Gems, we look at some film festival favorites that initially received a lot of attention, but have since either fallen into obscurity or fallen out of favor. We're going to dig them up and relitigate. On this episode, we're looking at Tom Noonan's darkly comedic What Happened Was, which won the Grand Jury Prize and the Waldo Salt Screenwriting Award at the 1994 Sundance Film Festival. But is the movie any good? Let's find out. Forgotten Gems, a chance to rediscover festival favorites. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as always is the Ripper, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? Pretty good. Gripping, gripping and ripping, Doug. Gripping and ripping. Liam, we are uh, recording a second episode in a row at the moment, so sure. uh, which we don't always do. I like to keep our energy up. How are you feeling energy-wise as we're recording here today, Liam? Oh, I'm a husk of my normal self. I'm ready to yeah. fall asleep right now while we're talking. How is your sleep? Liam, I mean, you have a young daughter. Oh you have, gosh. no, I'm just wondering, like, what's your normal amount of sleep that you get in a night? What's your average, you think? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I'm I'm always shooting for eight, of course, quite, quite intentionally, like with the idea that like getting enough sleep is good for you in a lot of different ways. Uh, lately, we're still nighttime training Maeve, so sure. uh, every other night, one of us is staying up a little bit later. And then last night was a particularly bad night that we're going through some sort of strange heat wave right now in the yeah. Chicago area. Mm-hmm. And so um, I made the mistake of not fully closing our bedroom door so that the cat could get the fuck out. And what that meant was that all the cold air rushed out of our room. Uh-huh. So um, I probably am operating right now, Doug, on about five to six hours at sure. most because uh, I kept getting so hot. I kept getting so hot. And I'm I have this weird thing where... I find it really hard to sleep without some manner of blanket or sheet on me. Right. So when I had to abandon my mid-warm blanket, but I was too tired to get up and find a sheet or a blanket that would not make me hot, that put me in that state of I'm not really sleeping, but I'm not really awake sort of thing. And it really messed my night up. Do you nap at all? Are you a napper? Lately, I have been, yes. I Historically, no. After having Maeve, I've I've had a few really good naps. Yes, interesting. And, and what do you attribute that to having a child or just getting older? Both. Uh, I think the child thing it especially comes in handy when you are sleep deprived and then they're going down for a nap. It's like, sure. why would I stay awake? I should fucking go to sleep too. But also having work to do, that's less common than you would think because sometimes especially during the pandemic, it'd be like, okay, she's down for a nap. Now is the only hour and a half I have for the entire day to do anything for me. So I'm going to do it, you know? Liam, we're here today to talk about what happened was, which is a film that at the end of our most recent episode of Forgotten Gems, we both kind of like talked about it a little bit. I don't think it was a movie that either of us were were uh, massively familiar with. I had just read an article at that time about this film because it has recently sort of been remastered. It was available earlier in 2021. Kind of virtual screenings of this film were available. And it's probably a good thing. The version of this that we watched was the older version, and it does look like trash. It does not look like a modern film at all. Um, and it, But what I have discovered since, when I went out on social media and said, I am watching What Happened Was, I got a flood of people who just were 
filled with love for this movie, just adoration for this movie all the way through. Very surprised by that. Uh, did, did you ha- have a sense of that, Liam, when you were watching it, that this is a movie that people really love? No, unlike you, I did not share my experience with the world. I just, uh, I, I was kind of in a rush to get it done, so I just sure. watched it. I talked to my wife about it a little bit, but she had never heard of it. I had never heard of it. I didn't even know uh, Tom Noonan was a director. I didn't. I had no idea that he. I know him only as a memorable character actor whose name I often forget, and so. Um, this whole thing has been a surprise, sort of top to bottom, especially the part where you're like, hey, this movie has a lot of fans. And I'm like, that's weird because I've never heard anyone mention it ever. <laughs> it's funny because I think 2021 is going to be sort of the year of this movie. I think we're right at the point, the kind of the pivot point where people are rediscovering it. Uh, one of the notable things about what happened was is that is that it's one of the favorite films of the writer-director Charlie Kaufman, uh, the writer of uh, Adaptation, being John Malkovich, and Anomalisa, which notably Anomalisa uh, features Tom Noonan doing almost all the voices in that film, uh, as well as Synecdoche, New York, which also features Tom Noonan. And the reason that Tom Noonan is in those movies, apparently, is because Charlie Kaufman was such a fan of what happened was. Are you a fan of Charlie Kaufman's? Yes. um... Oh, hesitant, yes. Well... (sighs) He just recently had a movie that I didn't have the wherewithal to give the time it deserved, right? Well, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what it was called even. I don't even remember the name of it. Everyone was talking about it. I tried to watch it. I thought it's. I'm thinking of ending things. Like yes, that. and I and I. I mean, granted, this was because I was dealing with a, a similar topic to what we're talking about earlier: sleep deprivation at the time. And I thought. I'll come back to this when I am more awake and more present, and I have not had any desire to do so since it came out. And um, that tells me that maybe I don't love him as much as I thought. But some of his movies that I am familiar with, I really do love. Like I've rewatched Being John Malkovich a few times. I've read rewatched Adaptation a few times. Um, but you know, uh, I I never. So uh, you mentioned Anomalisa. What was another one of the movies that you mentioned? Eternal Sunshine, of course, is a movie that he wrote the sure. script for. You know, Eternal Sunshine, I'm kind of back and forth on. Uh, I think I like it, but there's something about it that always kind of bothers me a little bit, and I'm, I'm not sure what it is. Uh, I was thinking more, didn't he also do uh, Didn't he do Schenectady, New York? Was yeah, that Syne- yeah, Schenectady. I actually Synectity. just mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. I thought you had just mentioned that. Never saw it. I'm scared to try it. I want to try it because of... Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman, thank you. Uh, and I love Philip Seymour Hoffman, and I've kind of made an unofficial commitment to myself to watch everything Philip Seymour Hoffman is in, of which I've watched most, but mm-hmm. not all. And so uh, that's on my list. But something about it is off-putting to me um, from afar. Uh, and, you know, I don't think anyone's opinions about a movie from afar mean anything. I don't think you know a movie till you've tried to watch it. Uh, but... It's not when when I am, you know, I watch a lot of things. And when I'm thinking, what am I going to watch right now? It just never comes out as like, that's the thing. I need to watch that right now. Something about it just is like intimidating. So it makes me wonder if maybe my affection for Charlie Kaufman is not as thorough as I thought. You know, around the time that Anomalisa came out, I think I was like still very much like, I think I love Charlie Kaufman. But, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I've just lost some interest in his voice. I'm not sure. 
I uh, I saw Anomalisa at the Toronto International Film Festival, and Charlie Kaufman was there and did a Q and A afterwards. And I have to say, I'm I'm a little lukewarm on the movie. I like it mostly, but uh, it's not one I care to revisit that often. But I will say, and I don't know what your opinion is of Q&As after movies, Liam, but I will say it's, it was a terrible Q&A where people just asked the worst questions or just told stories about themselves or just were, and I, all I could feel was the discomfort of Charlie Kaufman having to talk about the fact that, he, I mean, he makes very personal films. That's what he's known for doing, almost uncomfortably personal movies. Sure. And, and seeing these lunkheads fucking ask him the worst questions in the world, all I could think about it was, why, like, the worst part of making a movie must be having it made and then having to talk about it afterwards. I mean, yeah. In case we haven't talked about it on here before, I've been to so few Q and A's that were worthwhile, and I and I have some that I always reference, like um, seeing uh, uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene and having an audience member ask, uh, say to the director, "You know that moment at the end where the, it went black and it was over." And he said, yeah, of course, that's the end of the movie. And they say, what happened immediately after that? <laughs> well, you don't get to know. That's the end of the fucking movie. What are you, what are you trying to get at here? Or having someone, uh, <laughs> having someone say to the director of uh, Room 238, uh, uh, <laughs> how dare you support all these horrible theories? Why do you hate uh, uh, oh, Stanley Kubrick? Stanley Kubrick. Why do you hate Stanley Kubrick? Clearly you hate him to support all these terrible theories. I will say, it's a, that's not an uncommon interpretation of that film where people, I feel like people have gotten that movie so wrong and, and get so angry. so clearly. This I is know. what I find so... I love we, it. We, I love that movie. We've talked about this before, but let me make a quick reference for any new listeners, right? The, the movie's so clearly about the craziness of these people, and then... When his new movie came out about the the people who think we're living in the Matrix, a lot of reviewers were like, he just didn't give it the respect that he gave to the theories in Room 238. And I was like, no, he just was clearer that he doesn't believe these things because he was tired of being accused of believing these things, which is not what the fucking movie is about. You have some theories where you're watching it, you're like, huh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I can okay. see that. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I can see And then it gets crazier and crazier, and yep. that's what the movie is about, where it's just like 100%. if you start to embrace things that could very well be legitimate. Like I really do think that the uh, indigenous uh, genocide is a part of the mythology of The Shining. And like I think that that's like legitimately, intentionally part of that. And I love that that's talked about. And then you have people who are like, well, if that's true, then maybe this is true, and this is true, and this is true. And I feel like it's one of the most prescient, important movies now in 2021 because it's what we see all the time, right? People seeing a hint of something that they believe in and taking that to such extremes that they, they end up not being able to see where they came from, that they're completely lost in the weeds. It just – I saw multiple people say – the problem with his new movie is that he just, he, you know, maybe he doesn't believe it this time. And I was like, fuck. He didn't I, believe it last time, you motherfuckers. What are you talking about? I will say that I, I, while I did enjoy his documentary on sleep paralysis, I don't experience it. So it's it's hard to like understand entirely or relate to what people are saying. It sounds terrifying when people are describing what they're seeing and like the dark figures above them. I'm like, that sure, sounds so sure. scary. But it, I, they might as well be describing an alien abduction because it, to me, it's like I don't relate to anything they're saying. I just have to believe that they're experiencing this terrifying thing. It's so funny that you said that because the person I know who 
has experienced that and finds that movie terrifying is uh, my other co-host Justin Lore. Oh, and then you said you said the thing you know they might as well be describing an alien abduction. I'm like, well, the other thing that Justin Lore finds deeply horrifying is <laughs> describing an alien abduction. That to, that to him, I mean, he still thinks one of the most terrifying films ever made is Fire in the Sky. Well, here's the thing about Fire in the Sky, which I revisited somewhat recently. Uh, Ten minutes of that movie are terrifying. And then 90 minutes of it are just boring horseshit. And people who say, like, Fire in the Sky is the most terrifying movie ever, they only remember that 10 minutes. They don't remember that the fact that it's not even a horror movie or even a suspenseful movie outside of that. There's really nothing to it. It's a very bland movie, which just happens to have one great sequence in it. I don't think he would completely disagree with you. But for me, Doug, the reason that I make it an issue is because that uh, great sequence you're describing is not scary to me in the least. That is a <laughs> corny Nine Inch Nails video. I mean, that, it is that's not true. Upsetting to me at all. And so when I watched it with him, and he, right before that scene happens, he's visibly uncomfortable. He's like holding himself in a ball. Like this is the worst thing that's. I do happen. think this is something that comes from childhood to a certain extent because a lot right, of people right. saw that during their childhood. I will also say that I don't believe in alien abduction. I actually, bringing it back to what we were talking about, I actually believe that a lot of reported alien abductions are likely some form of sleep paralysis where people have, uh, you know, encountered things. Their brain is inventing things to have them deal with this horrible experience that they're having and they see these figures and they just say oh there must have been aliens i lost this period of time when it was actually some sort of sleep paralysis or kind of night terrors or hear me out here doug (laughs) yeah they're not aliens they're beings from another dimension hey that's much more believable come on hey i mean (laughs) it's at least as believable liam this movie we're talking about what happened was won the grand jury prize dramatic at the 1994 sundance film festival uh other films that played at that festival included it uh included uh kevin smith's clerks spanking the monkey hoop dreams a lot of notable films from 1994 it was kind of a uh, watermark for independent film, but the film that went home with Grand Jury Prize Dramatic was What Happened Was. Uh, Noonan was also, uh, Tom Noonan was nominated for Best First Screenplay, and Karen Sillis was uh, nominated for Best Female Lead at the 10th Independent Spirit Awards of 1994 as well. So this movie did get a lot of recognition. It is not widely available. I think at the moment it might be showing on Amazon Prime, but uh, it is a movie that I do remember seeing on VHS in the 1990s, but it is not a movie that I feel like has gotten a lot of attention since maybe it's because it is a very small movie in a lot of ways right it is just two actors it is very obviously has its origins on the stage though in a very unique way as we'll talk about in just a moment uh and it's not a movie that's very showy uh though i do feel like it is sort of the precedent of movies like uh, before sunrise uh which which takes kind of a similar uh look at a relationship over a uh uh a similar look at a relationship with two characters over a set period of time. Uh, so uh, any thoughts about that, that the fact that this movie was recognized in 1994, it's kind of seemingly fallen out of favor, even though, as I mentioned, it does have a lot of uh, people who love it at this time period. I wonder if you could make a thesis that um, there's probably a lot of movies that made their own kind of splashes in the early 90s that then somehow got washed away in the mainstreaming of films that wanted to be Pulp Fiction. Yeah, absolutely. 95 you know, was like the the, the, the the year that everything changed. Right. So like there was a point where it's a movie where two people are on a date and it's just the two of them and they're talking would be a description of an indie movie that everyone would be like, yes, that does sound like an independent artsy film. And then suddenly 
all independent film became men trying to shoot each other while wearing suits. And uh, there were examples that aren't that, but they just it, it it they didn't take up the cultural consciousness as much. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know. I wonder if that's part of the erasure of this movie. Again, lots of people seem to love it, but I certainly haven't heard any conversation about it in a long time. Right. Well, I mean, like I said, maybe this is the year where that switches around again. And maybe part of that is Charlie Kaufman's love of this film. I mean, he is a, a director that has a lot of love in our kind of community of film lovers as as online people, let's say. And uh, maybe with the fact that this movie now can be viewed in a form that uh, looks a little bit more modern, uh, maybe that, that can, uh, can help raise his profile as well. But maybe it's not worth it, Liam. I haven't really gotten a sense of what you thought of this movie yet. So let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Tom Noonan's What Happened Was. Jeez, you know, these things scare me. Oh, well, they're pretty safe. Well, do you know how they work? Yeah, it's the, uh, you know, it's the microwaves. Yeah, it's the waves. You know, they go in, they heat the food up. It's, it's the waves. <laughs> no, no, not exactly. See, microwaves are powerful, low-frequency electromagnetic waves. Mm -hmm. When they strike an organic substance, make the molecules vibrate, vibrations heat, that's how they work. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> you like science? Uh, y yeah, sure, I guess. Yeah, especially those uh, animal science kinds of things, you know, the, the nature specials. Nature specials are great. You know when the animals, they do all those kinds of things? You know, Birds mm -hmm. are really dinosaurs. Birds. Birds. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, when the, when the okay. big dinosaurs went extinct, the little ones survived. And, and uh, see, birds and, and dinosaurs both have hollow bones, and the feathers are really just an involvement of scales. I always thought that was really amazing. Wow. That's pretty cool. Where did, where did you learn all this stuff? Oh, I, I read a lot, and yeah, I just remember stuff. Jackie and Michael are co-workers at a large law firm who decide to meet at Jackie's for dinner one night. As this first date plays out, the audience is guided through a mental minefield of disappointment. It's 1994's What Happened Was, directed by Tom Noonan, who probably, uh, for both of us, is best known as an actor uh, from the film Manhunter, might be his most famous role. He's the villain in Last Action Hero and RoboCop 2. He also played Frankenstein in my beloved 1980s uh, film The Monster Squad, written by Tom Noonan. Uh, as I mentioned before, originally staged as a play, but not a traditional play. Uh, it actually, they would have these two characters having these interactions while surrounded by the audience who were just sitting there in chairs, and he would put this on again and again and again, and it helped him kind of form the script that would uh, end up being what happened was the film in 1994. Tom Noonan stars as Michael, Karen Sillis, uh, who some people might know from the works of Hal Hartley. Uh, she plays Jackie Marsh. These are the only two actors in the entire film, and it is very stage-ish because of that. We see them go through their evening. We see them have their date together. We see them in a single apartment, though, uh, to Tom Newton's credit, he really does make that apartment look very kind of expansive and interesting in the way that he shoots it. Liam, uh, I'm just going to give it away from the beginning. I thought this movie was absolutely incredible. Uh, I was absolutely 100% blown away. I did not know what to expect going in the first 20 minutes or so. I'm like, I don't know. I'm not feeling this. But once it got its hooks into me, I was incredibly with it. And once a certain moment in this film happens, and we'll talk about it in just a moment, I was so overwhelmed. I was getting emotional watching it because it was so overwhelming 
to me at that time. Uh, so with that said, knowing how I feel about it, what did you think of what happened was? I mean, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I... Um, I appreciate a lot of what's going on here. I think there's a lot of subtle character work going on, and he's developing two people who are experiencing similar kinds of loneliness, but whose life experiences and ways of looking at the world are very different, you know? And he's really exploring um, the ways that they speak to each other feel very real without becoming so real that they're frustrating like sometimes films where everyone's speaking how we actually speak are really annoying because like actual people talking is not fun like have you have you been to a party no one is interesting to listen to it's all very stilted and awkward he manages to recreate chunks of that without it ever feeling totally off um i will say and this is probably sacrilege to people who love this movie uh, there is a way that these characters are embodied where sometimes it feels like one is watching the performance of the other and it takes me out of the movie. There are multiple times where I've, I'm just like, I don't believe that they would be quiet right now. Like, I don't believe, like, it feels like they're just watching the other person act and it's it's making me not to, it's reminding me that this is very much a movie. Uh, and and that maybe that's just a taste thing, but it just it it took me out of the moment a little bit. I do think there's a layer of artifice here for yeah. sure, and I think part of it is what you were saying, which is that they're speaking to an extent like real people, but not really. Because if you were just having two people, even in this circumstance, right, this kind of fascinating look at two people on their first date trying to feel each other out a little bit, I did not feel that they were necessarily saying and doing the things that I would say or do in that circumstance, or really anyone I know would say or do in that circumstance. But I still was so fascinated with how it was playing out that, that there was enough reality there that I could still connect with it. But I don't disagree with what you're saying. Sometimes it feels performative, but I actually think that that's intentional, uh, particularly because these characters are kind of layering artifice upon themselves as well. Tom Noonan's Michael, he is presenting himself as this kind of person. And what we discover and what is revealed throughout the film is that he's not that person at all. Sure. That he is that he is basically uh, performing at all times. And he has created this persona that he wants to get across to her. And also a persona that she has sort of been... Um, that she has connected with in their workplace environment, and which is the reason that she wanted to have this date in the first place. But he is like this aloof guy, right? I mean, that's his aloofness is sort of what defines him. And you kind of get embarrassed for her because she just seems like a normal, regular person for a lot of it. And because she's regular and he's aloof, it feels that for a lot of like the first half of this movie that he's judging her in some way. And then it feels like the power dynamic shifts at some point and you feel like, he is the one that is being judged. He is the one that is being put on kind of trial to a certain extent. And that's what I find so fascinating about this movie is the way that these power dynamics shift throughout the movie. And there's also kind of this dark sense of humor at its core. And it took me a while to pick up on it, right? The fact that the awkwardness is what makes this funny. This is very much ahead of its time in the idea of wringing humor out of awkward situations, which became almost a cliche in the early 2000s. But it feels like it feels like the kind of movie that could have come from the early 2000s. But uh, I do want to talk a little bit about the performances because really that's all we have here. The, f the fact that you 
felt like these characters were watching each other in that performance. Was that the the main reason that you didn't necessarily connect to the the let's say the plot of what's going on? No, not I don't think I I don't think so. Um, I think it, it 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 was distracting to me because I think in other ways, uh, while there is a certain artifice, there's also a certain realism, and so it felt that aspect of it felt discordant a little bit. Um, that like because it felt more like a timing thing. Uh, than it did like a inherent in the script thing. It was like uh, I I don't know why there seemed to be these unnatural pauses or uh, a, a fear of having two characters occasionally interrupt each other. You know what I mean? Um, uh, that that kind of uh, was a little distracting. My main thing with the movie was that uh, I guess the the nuance of how these power differentials are changing and how they're sort of being different. It just didn't connect with me. And I think part of that is the sort of aloofness that Tom Noonan has in the film, I assume is always a symptom of deep insecurity and possible mental illness. And that's just my prejudice. I don't believe, I mean that, uh, that seems to be played out, right? That's the case in the movie. It is, but there's no reveal there. From moment one, I think, oh, this guy's fucked. Oh, I see. So the moment where it's like, where perhaps it's like, oh, it's really like she has the power in this situation and he doesn't know what to do with it. That's what I feel like from day one, from moment one. So, But don't, you think, but don't you think that the fact that, that even though you recognize that, and I think a lot of people would recognize that he's full of shit from the beginning, the fact that we eventually get to a point where he has to openly admit that he's full of shit and have that and have to kind of come clean on the person that he actually is, that doesn't happen in real life like it does in sure. the movies, right? Sure. I mean, you don't see people reveal themselves that rawly uh, in real life very often. But I didn't find it, for whatever reason, and I don't know, I, I want to completely acknowledge, maybe I was watching this too casually, you know, because I was watching it in chunks uh, throughout two days. Sure. Um, maybe it was the quality, which, because my internet is so bad, I'd even turned down the quality from what it is, so I was really watching a, a mess on the screen. Um, Jesus Christ, Liam. <laughs> I, it's just true. Uh, so uh, maybe I just didn't find it visually engaging uh, enough. All I know is that something significantly happens for these characters emotionally, and I'm not sure that I cared enough to be wrapped up in it. Um, and and, and I, the only reason I brought up the original criticism of the performance was purely because that's the only thing that was negative about the performance. Like, I think overall, Tom Noonan has really brought this character to life in a way and has created this woman for this other uh, actor to embody. And they both feel like these very real people, uh, people that you could sort of uh, know in the world. But um, for whatever reason, I just, I didn't care. I didn't find myself pulled into what was going on on screen in a way where some of the bigger reveals, like when she's reading her story, all I could think was like, is this supposed to be funny? Is this funny? Is this funny? Because it's upsetting, but is it also funny? I don't know. Um, when he reveals that he's truly a jerk off at the end, I'm like, so what? This is a desperate attempt not to have to leave? I don't know why I care about this. I just, I found none of it easy for me to connect to. Now, 
I think it's of a quality where I also thought ah, I could probably watch that again though, just to see like what I missed or what I you know wasn't there. But I was when when we did pre pro and you were like, I love this movie. I was like, <laughs> I'm really excited for you to tell me why because I I I uh, I didn't I didn't see again. Sometimes when we don't like movies on this show, it's really obvious to be like, this sucks. You know, this was bad. That's not what I'm saying at all. There was nothing about this, again, other than like my feeling of like, wow, he doesn't have to pause so long when she's done talking. It feels weird. Other than that, there's nothing bad. In fact, I would say a lot of it's really good. So what I'm feeling, Doug, is a feeling of confusion. Why did this whole <laughs> thing end? And I was like, I don't know. I don't. It just wasn't there for me, and I don't know why. Um, I want to read from Roger Ebert's review of what happened was uh, he had kind of a middling review of the film when it came out. Gene Siskel loved it. Um, he says, there are many small moments of perfect observation, but I never really felt they were building to anything or heading anywhere. I didn't feel chemistry between the characters, not the chemistry of attraction, of course, but not even the chemistry of mutual awareness. Both of them were playing their own tapes. It's an interesting film and a brave effort, but there's something missing. That seems to echo what you felt about the movie, Liam. I think so, but I want to be clear, and this is something I feel about Roger Ebert that maybe I'm wrong about, but uh, Roger Ebert really likes telos. You know, he really likes purpose. I think sometimes he's eviscerated films because he didn't feel like they had a point. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Fuck a point. I don't care about the point. If I cared about these people, the fact that there wasn't a direction or an end point or a goal or a final sort of uh, uh, a claim about human relationships. None of that matters to me. I just didn't connect with these people. You know what I'm saying? So like I, I, I again, I'm not trying to be too harsh on Roger Ebert because I loved his work in a lot of ways too. But sometimes I think he needed, the movie needed to be about something and I'm not sure that I'm there. I don't need it to be about anything, but I didn't, I didn't feel myself connecting to what was happening on screen. Don't you think though, the the fact that you didn't know what to feel when Jackie reads her children's story, that the film doesn't say, Oh, you're supposed to find this funny or you're supposed to find this disturbing or you're supposed to find this uncomfortable or whatever. Like if that's what the movie wants is that to not tell you how to feel, but it seemed that you were having difficulty connecting to it because you didn't know how to feel. Because I didn't get the people, I didn't. I didn't feel connected to them. On right. I don't. I, I let me say this: when I want to know how to feel, right? It, it, when I feel that thing of like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be feeling right now. It's not necessarily. I think the director should be telling me. It's that I don't feel drawn into this moment, so that I know how I would feel, or or I can suspect how they're feeling, or I can make like I think. The idea that you could watch anything and have no emotional response to it, I don't vibe with. Like, sure. if I'm supposed to be a Buddhist over here, that's, <laughs> that's unfair to Buddhists. But you know what I mean? Like, that idea of disconnection, that's not experiencing a piece of art. But I also don't think – I think the other thing could be true, right? Where a director is very much telling you what to feel, and that can sometimes feel terrible. It's like you're being pushed something. You know? Sure. It, it's, it's the yeah, idea I think, of I think, I think especially insisting as- on itself. Yeah, exactly. So the idea of when you feel manipulated by the director exactly, into right. feeling a strong emotion, you wrinkle against that, and so do I. I think that's something that the more movies you watch, the more you recognize when that's happening, and that it's more something that you probably feel uncomfortable with when you feel like you're being told to feel something. One hundred percent. It's just I don't, I don't like that either. My saying I don't know what to feel in this moment is more like not. 
again, maybe it's an understanding thing. Maybe I don't understand the characters or maybe I just don't connect to the characters or maybe I'm not involved enough in the dynamics to really have a read on the situation. I don't know. I, 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 I'm not trying to make a definitive claim about this is why the movie failed and I'm right. It's more like this was my experience of the movie and maybe that's on me. Maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention or maybe I find Tom Noonan too off-putting to understand what he's saying or maybe I just found myself thinking like uh, more about the inherent class issues as opposed to the personality differences, if that makes sense. I, sure. I, I don't know. I, again, it's this. I, maybe that's not. Maybe I'm being unsatisfying right now to our audience and not having like <laughs> a fully formed critical take. But I don't have a fully formed criti- critical take other than when you said you loved it. All I wanted to know was why, and I still want to know why. I don't think you've said enough yet for me to know. Sure, why. that's fair enough. I w- well, let's see if if I can explain it a little in regards to that one scene we've already talked about, which is probably the centerpiece of the entire film, when Jackie, after much resistance, reads her quote-unquote children's story to Michael. Uh, she takes him to this area, which is filled with like dollhouses and kind of weird childlike imagery. She starts reading this story, and you quickly realize that despite her uh, describing it as a, a story for children that that it's actually incredibly dark and incre- incredibly adult. <laughs> when Michael points this out afterwards, she's like, "Have you ever read the Brothers Grimm?" But this goes a much more modern, dark places. Right, right. And it, you know, as a viewer, you're like, "Is she describing some part of her own life? Is right. this the way that she deals with her own trauma in some way? Is this just the way that her brain works? That her imagination comes up with these incredibly dark, disturbing scenarios?" But also. That at the time, it's also very well written and almost kind of comically dark in some ways in the way that uh, that that it all kind of pours out of her. But like yourself, I didn't know what to feel. I certainly wasn't laughing at it. And maybe part of it was because Michael's reaction at first is kind of like a discomfort. And then it moves on to almost being disturbed by it. He starts to, I mean, and, and it's this is played out very interesting in a visual way where he starts to like to see things within the dollhouse as he's as he's hearing the words that she's saying. He, it seems like he's feeling, he goes from kind of just general discomfort to being disturbed by what he has to say, but shaken at the end to the point where his only reaction is that, that she should publish it, right? And he says, he seems to be saying that sincerely, that he sees something in this work that is so unique and deserves to be seen by people that he pushes her to publish it because she had the bravery to do something that he, as we find out later, never was able to do, that he couldn't complete the things that he needs to be told to do anything. She, at that point, it feels like he doesn't have a lot of respect for her intelligence before she reads that story, but it's a pivot point for the entire movie. Afterwards, he sort of is in awe of her, even if he might be a little scared of her afterwards as well. And that's another thing about this movie that I really loved. If you go into this not knowing anything about it, which is what I think both of us went into, there's probably a feeling as you're watching it that someone might get killed in this movie. That there could be a point where someone takes out a knife and stabs the other person. And if anything, that would have been a relief that this movie doesn't provide. That then it would at least lead to something, right? In the way that Roger Ebert probably would have been happy if at the end she took out a knife and just stabbed Tom Noonan in the face or something like that. But this movie isn't really about that. But it is still about kind of a conflict and a battle and a power shift that's going on back and forth. It is something that's kind of difficult to pinpoint and just explain directly. But I find that that sequence, the children's story sequence in this, 
was the moment that I mentioned earlier that I found kind of overwhelmingly powerful. And the reason being is the same reason I think that you had difficulty connecting with it, which is that the movie does not tell you how to feel about it. Maybe. I mean, uh, let me ask a few questions here. Sure. Do you think that Tom Noonan's character is a virgin? Um, if he's not, it's only because of maybe the person he was before he was broken in university. Right. And that's something okay. that is kind of reinforced. Yeah. But, but yeah. I, it would not surprise me. His discomfort is the kind of discomfort I have recognized in people that would, uh, that has made it so they've never been able to connect in relationships. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, hmm. I I think maybe I was focusing on some of the wrong things. Like, I was thinking about that difference uh, in their romantic experience and what that meant. I was, I found myself thinking about my feeling when he says, oh, this was a date, right? Right. Is that was a defense mechanism, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. Um, and I just found that so utterly frustrating that I didn't. How about the knowledge that that comes from an actual anecdote, that that actually did happen to someone, right? And maybe in that case was exactly what you said, was a defense mechanism, because as soon as you confirm that it's a date, you have to confirm that you have some sort of emotional wish to have this person be part of your life on a deeper level, or at least if only for that one night, right? That you want to make an emotional connection with someone, and he seems unable to do that because he is so... Like you said, he's so insecure. And it's something she picks up on right away. And when she says it, he completely wrinkles at it. I'm not insecure. I'm not insecure. He obviously is. But this movie, if anything, it is the journey about him embracing the fact that he's insecure. But at the end, you don't know. Maybe the next day, that's why she says, right? Think about it over the weekend. Think about what you want to do. Because on Monday, you can kind of see him just going right back to how he was before and pretending this never happened. Yeah. Again, I'm impressed by the journey and the storytelling of it all, mm-hmm. right? But for some reason, I just was kind of like, okay. Like, it, it's it's when I say I found myself not caring, that can come across like I was watching an action movie and it was all pomp and explosions and I it's all fucked and I don't care. That's not what I mean, though. What I mean is, like, I'm impressed, that's pretty good, but I don't. I don't have the emotional response to it that I want to have for a movie that that seems to be the point. The right. point is how it's affecting you because there's there's no there's no other intrigue or drama than your emotional investment, and so not having that left me feeling kind of empty. And I 100 when it was over, the first thing I said to Suze about it, she didn't watch it with me, but I connected with her after was I said like, man, I don't know, I kind of want to rewatch it because I. I feel like I missed something or something. You know what I mean? Right, and that's right, right. that's before knowing anyone liked the movie. You could have come on and been like, oh, everybody hates this movie. <laughs> and I still would have been like, I just feel like I missed something, though. I, I do find it strange that people often compare this movie to the Before Sunrise trilogy. That's, uh, that's to me, Doug, that's actually insane. I don't that, understand. It does, it. I, I agree with that, right? I mean, in terms of maybe its motivations to a certain extent or what it's trying to say about how people connect and the difficulties maybe there's something there but to me it's like that's a movie where it's very clear what you're supposed to think about these characters even if you might have some kind of conflicted feelings about it here it you are not there's no guiding hand here like that this is not uh, a movie that that is for lack of a better way of saying it 
I find those movies a lot easier than this movie, but that doesn't mean I like right. them more necessarily. I mean, it does for me, but that, I'm being unfair because yeah, but I, I think I, that, that I like those movies too. Yeah, and I and I haven't watched them all yet. Actually, I have the box set, but I haven't watched all the movies sure. yet. I need to. I need to. But that first movie, you know, watching it as an adult as opposed to when I first watched it, when I guess I was kind of an adult, but I was way younger. I get a lot more that uh, that uh, uh, Ethan Hawke is is a dickhead, right. right? Like I think when you're watching it, when you are a, a, a aspiring twenty something who maybe takes himself more seriously than he should, you don't quite get that he sucks, right? Like sure, and granted, not that he sucks to an irredeemable degree, or else there wouldn't be sequels. But there's something about him that is not cool, right? That you're like, oh, this guy. But I only get that now as a 40-some-year-old. I'm like, oh, Jesus. Okay. You know, like, it, it, whatever. Maybe there's just something. I don't know. I wonder if it's just the what's at stake for me with this movie is just um, it's just harder for me to – or at least in this viewing, this first-time viewing, it was harder for me to – connect to it in some sense or or understand it in a way uh and maybe that's because the the folks like tom noonan's character who i've met who i feel much compassion for in the abstract i rarely can tolerate in the reality right so i'm picturing myself in this room going ah fuck i just could someone just punch this guy in the face? Like, what the fuck is going on? Like, I just, I mean, I, just... I think I, I, the thing is, I agree with you, but also by the end, I, I was trying to find out where my emotional connection with that right. character, yes, set, yes, right, true. And at first, because I really disliked him for the first half of the movie, but then at the end, where he's talking about how, you know, once he had this this experience in university where he dropped out, sure. and for whatever reason that is, and. Ever since then, he's been sitting at home watching TV. He hasn't been doing following his dreams. He has these plans. That's what he talks about. He's, you have these plans, and then you start falling behind, and then you wake up one day, and you realize that you've fallen so far behind that you can't ever catch up again. And I feel like that's something that everyone can relate to, to a certain that, extent. That was right? the most relatable part of the movie. I will say that. If there is a point that like struck my heartstrings in a way where I was like, oh, God, like I felt that. It was when he said that. But yeah. I also felt like that was – that experience is universal in a way that his response to that experience was hard for me to understand. Right. You know what I mean? Like, And, and, and again, that's uh, – I, I – well, I, I'm not saying I don't want to talk more about the movie, but I do want to say, like, I feel a little bit as a disadvantage because I feel like it's a movie that I should rewatch and think about more because I'm not convinced my initial response makes sense to me. If that I mean, one of the things about a podcast, Liam, is that you are expected to be the expert on something from having only seen it once or having seen it a couple <laughs> times. No, what I mean, it's, it's no, unfair. 100%, yes. It's an unfair position because I always think about how there are certain people that we – encounter on uh on online on social media who are interested in film and they dig their heels in on a certain position on a film and then you start to think it's like that's now out there when people think of you in that film that is the perspective that you have if in 10 years you revisit it and your feelings completely change which happens to me all the time that i change my feelings on a, on a film then how are you going to feel about how that's out in the world? Are you going to feel like an idiot? Or are you never going to be able to feel another way because the world sees you as feeling yeah, that way yeah. about the movie? 
when I when I first started dating my wonderful wife, one of the movies I told her, I'd say first, within the first few years, uh, one of the movies I told her was an essential part of understanding my The Boondock Saints. And who I was, <laughs> was The Golden Child. Oh, interesting. Have you watched The Golden Child recently? Uh, when I watched it like 10 years ago, all I got from it was, and I watched it when I was a kid, and I did love it, was that there's a lot of racism in that movie. Yeah, it's terrible <laughs> and racist and not funny at all and not exciting. It has nothing in it. There's almost nothing in it to recommend it other than the fact that Eddie Murphy is generally charming. Right. That's it. And and yet when I was a kid, I must have watched that shit on TV a <laughs> hundred times. You know what I mean? And and yet now I'm like, pff, it's sort of the opposite of my experience of Deep Cover, which was like rewatching Deep Cover when I finally got it on DVD in like 2012, I think, was when I finally got the DVD and revisited it. Was like, not only is this movie still good, it's better than I thought it was as a kid. This is... A million times better than I thought it was, actually. I mean, and I love is, that movie. This is something we encounter all the time, though, when we're talking to her. Like, again, we're talking about social media for the most part. But like the idea that people are like, they, they have this enduring love for something. And all I want to say to them is, have you watched it lately as an right. adult through yes. adult eyes? Yes. Because there's there's shit in i mean and again i don't i'm not necessarily talking about problematic stuff like going back to watch revenge of the nerds or even the monster squad which i've already mentioned right, right? which has a lot of kind of very unpleasant slurs spread throughout it but the, the idea that that just you are not a bad person because you used to love something and now the person that you are now doesn't love that thing anymore uh, or the other way around, that you used to dislike it, and now you have a better appreciation for it. This is a movie, by the way. What happened was, if I saw this when I was 20, when if I saw it when I was 17, I would have fucking hated it. Because I wouldn't have even tried to connect with it. I'd be like, what is going on here? It's just a film stage play. So maybe it's because I've kind of aged into the material that I connect with it a little bit more. Though, I mean, I'm open to the idea that maybe the next time I watch this, I think it's completely up its own ass and has nothing to recommend it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what it's going to be, but I, I just have to be honest to my experience now, which is that I definitely didn't hate it. I definitely thought it was, you know, at, at both an acting and screenwriting level, very commendable, but I didn't feel anything. And I'm, and I'm yet, I, I want to rewatch it to determine if that's the movie in some way or if that's me. And if I, when I say it's the movie, I don't mean because the movie failed. It just might be it's a movie not for me. Not everything is for everybody. And yeah. this might not be for me. I mean, I, I think that's fair. And I honestly, going back to the work of Charlie Kaufman, I think that's another thing about his films. His work is not for everyone. So even when I see people have a really strong, negative reaction to his films to me it doesn't feel like oh now i don't want to see it it makes me more curious about it because it's like well maybe this is one i will connect with on a stronger basis or maybe 10 years down the line i'll connect with it now one thing i wanted to mention before we finish up here outside of the fact that i really want to highlight karen uh, Silas's performance yes. here i yes. think she is absolutely astounding and i think she um, is an actress that I have not seen in a lot of different work, but it's uh, you can tell that Tom Noonan has been very careful in who he wanted to choose to play opposite him, and I think she is just as good as he is in this movie, and I think he's outstanding. But I did want to talk about the fact that Tom Noonan has been talking for years about potentially making a sequel to this film uh, with the idea of catching up with these characters 20 years down the line. What he mentioned is the plot of the follow-up. He wanted to make three of them. The second one would be that basically... Um, this is this is 20 years later. Michael has locked himself out of his apartment and he, and he encounters um, Jackie on the streets of New York City and then they have to kind of reconnect. 
Is that something that you think that you'd be interested in, or do you feel like it'll just be more of the same? I think I would be interested in that. I, it's weird to say that, but I think I would be curious to see if he can come up with anything new. When I say interested, would I pay a ton of money to see it in the theater? No, no, I would not. But uh, would I be willing to stream it for free just to see what's going on? <laughs> yes, I would. Um, I, I, because I'm curious. I, and I, I think there, there's obviously something there that he's trying to get at that I find interesting. I'm just not convinced it works. Uh, but that doesn't mean it wouldn't work for a next thing. I think if it was more a situation of do I think that this should be the next project – as opposed to something else. I don't know. I mean, I feel like the man's going to make whatever he's going to make. I don't know that that needs to exist in the world. But if people are willing to pay for it and they can do it, I don't know. I, I'd probably watch it. One final question before we finish up here, Liam, which is that do you think you would have connected with this material more if you were on that stage, you know, circled around these two people, developing this relationship over a night and then coming to this kind of emotional release or climax in it do you think feel like that that any of the difficulties you had with how the dialogue was or how the interactions were do you think that that would have connected more if you were seeing it in person i so my immediate response is to say yes uh but that sort of suggests that in some way live theater is more vital than film sure um but i i I do think that that's true when it comes to telling a certain sort of story. Whenever people talk about filmed stage plays, right, they always complain because they're not cinematic enough, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Sure, I guess. I guess they're not. And maybe sometimes they are. I don't fucking know. But for me, what is so compelling about a stage play that is this personal is that if you were in, especially in this example where you're fucking close enough to smell them. Right. There is something dynamic happening in front of you. It inevitably that's going to be more compelling, even if when it's over you think, uh, "I still found those characters a little more alienating than I think was intended." Um, you couldn't help but be moved by the dynamism of seeing people bring that to life in your physical space. I don't think that means movies are less important than theater. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. I just happen to think that the the skill the I don't want to say skills. The attributes that movies add to storytelling and and whatever else communication um, really are in movement and narrative, or movement and editing and sound, and those things are less important for a movie like this. So I just think, at a purely human level, being with those people and seeing what they're doing up close would inevitably be more compelling. Um, um, because of their presence. Whereas for a film, uh, what makes film better for me are not embodied in a film like this. Right. I, I, okay. I mean, I think that's really fair. So would you still recommend this movie? And actually, let's go to the idea of the show as a whole. Would you consider what happened was a forgotten gem? No. Uh, but that's because, A, it's way less forgotten than I thought it was. Yeah, I think that's uh, fair. And B, it's not that it's not a gem. I think that for some people, this is a movie they should see. And it could probably qualify as a forgotten gem for people who are very invested. I don't know if Charlie Kaufman is the best example. But in films that are about, uh, or narratives in general, that are about awkward human interaction. Sure. right? About navigating the difficulties of being a human. Um, this is one example of that. And so I would recommend those uh, to people. For people who are like 
there's only two people in the movie and they're on a date and that doesn't sound interesting or or you know what I mean like sure. if if you already think uh my dinner with Andre sounds like torture this isn't going to help you know no. it is not a movie that is for everyone though I do think if you're the kind of person who would have the patience for particularly later Charlie Kaufman films like Anomalisa like Schenectady New York that this is something that is a must-see that is because the sensibilities you can feel are shared to a certain extent there this is something that you should really go out of your way to see but even if those movies don't appeal to you if what we've been talking about even in the conflict between liam and i in regards to our perspective on this movie if it sounds interesting to you i think you really have to see it you have to see how you respond to it you'll know very i i was gonna say you're gonna you would know right away if you're gonna connect to it i don't think that's fair because i didn't it took me probably half the movie until i figured it out but I will say that there will likely come a point where you're either with the movie or at that point you've completely rejected it or rejected it to a certain extent. So uh, it is a movie that I think you should seek out and watch. And while you're right, I don't think it's necessarily forgotten. Uh, I do think it's a gem. And I do think that for a large part of the mainstream viewing audience, those who are not listening to this podcast, uh, it probably has been forgotten by them. So it's a movie that I do hope is being revisited and uh, better appreciated in the year 2021 and going forward. And hey, maybe we will see that sequel. I would love to see it. Just want to see what these characters have been up to over the last more than 20 years. Liam O'Donnell, on the next episode of Forgotten Gems, uh, we're we're actually visiting a film by a very beloved filmmaker. What movie is that? Uh, we're going to do Leos Carax's 1984 debut feature-length film, Boy Meets Girl. Uh, it played at the 1984 uh, C- uh, Cannes Film Festival, although it was an adjacent – it wasn't the main festival. Sure. It was an adjacent part of the festival, but it did win the top award at that adjacent festival. So uh, we're going to be diving into that, and I, I, I think it counts as a forgotten gem because while we're all talking about him right now with his new film – I hear no one mention this. I mean, I barely hear anyone mention any of his films besides Holy Motors, but this film especially doesn't seem to get the attention that his other films get. Yeah, yeah, and maybe there's a good reason for that, but I am very interested. I'm a huge Denny Levant fan as an actor. Seeing him back in 1984 will be quite a trip. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, right now, Leos Carax is... Uh, getting a lot of attention for Annette, which is currently streaming on Amazon. Uh, and uh, his previous film, Holy Motors, was kind of a sensation when it came out. And it did lead to a lot of people who maybe weren't as familiar with his career to go back, but really only back maybe as far back as 1990 and nothing before. Uh, on the next episode of Forgotten Gems, we'll be looking at 1984's Boy Meets Girl. Liam, if people want to check out more episodes of Forgotten Gems or other podcasts, where should people uh, check it out? Well, they can head over to CinePunks.com, that's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, uh, for the latest episodes of this podcast, as well as other podcasts in the CinePunks family, like our flagship podcast, CinePunks, as well as a, a host of other culture, uh, politics, film, art podcasts. Uh, we also have writing over there and merch uh, and a link to our Patreon. Uh, so, you know, I strongly suggest people go check that out. They can dive into the archives of this podcast over at cinemasmorgasbord.com, where we cover just a variety of topics uh, from Carol Kane to Jackie Chan to uh, genre film festivals around the world. Um, they can also find Cinepunks on social media, which I encourage them to do uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, C I N E P U N X where they can get all the latest news about what's going on, hopefully start some discussion, things like that. Uh, And they can find us on Twitter at CinemaSmorg, S-M-O-R-G. 
You can, of course, follow Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And you can follow me on there as well at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And yes, as Liam, as Liam mentioned, you can find all of our older episodes and all of our variety of Cinema Smorgasbord podcasts over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. Why don't you go ahead and leave us a review on your podcast catcher of choice, or if you have a suggestion for a theme that we should cover on a brand new podcast, you could always give that to us through the website as well. You can email us or send us a message through our various social media. But for now, Liam, we need to rest. We need to rest up because we're going to be back very soon with another forgotten gem. Good night, everyone. Night, night.